Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. On September 11th, 1777, the British Army defeated the American Army at the Battle of Brandywine outside Philadelphia. Two weeks later, the British Army marched into the city and captured the American capital. The Continental Congress fled Philadelphia, and General George Washington was determined to make one last attempt to retake the city before winter. Washington positioned his army northwest of the city, and told various commanders to harass the British at every opportunity. British Commander-in-Chief William Howe had divided his roughly 15,000 men into three groups after he captured Philadelphia. One group, which included Fraser's Highlanders, cleared out a series of small American forts south of the city. One group stayed with Howe in the city center, and one group was stationed at a village called Germantown, seven miles north of the city. George Washington thought the group at Germantown was vulnerable. Washington had about 11,000 men. 8,000 were Continental soldiers, and 3,000 were militiamen. The British and Hessian force at Germantown numbered about 9,000. On the night of October 3rd, Washington split his army into three columns and positioned them for an attack at dawn the next day. But right away, there was a problem. Thick fog blanketed the area. The three columns moved toward their assigned targets, but the fog made it impossible to see more than a few yards ahead. Then, the confusing, twisting labyrinth of roads played havoc with the advance. General Nathaniel Green led the main attack force, and he was supposed to strike first. His goal was to smash the British center and drive them toward the nearby Skullkill River. But his column of Virginia Continentals was mired in the tangled web of roads and hindered by the fog. As a result, the battle began with General John Sullivan's column of Continental soldiers from Maryland, Delaware, and Pennsylvania. They attacked a British light infantry outpost just outside Germantown. The Americans drove hard against the British positions and succeeded in pushing them back. As the main body of the British light infantry regrouped in an orchard, about 100 of their men took cover in an old stone house. Thus far, George Washington's complex plan was working, even though it wasn't unfolding the way he had envisioned. Sullivan's column was winning its part of the battle, but then the confusing roads and fog reasserted themselves as painful obstacles, and the old stone house became an impediment that helped unravel the plan. 
Some of Washington's officers urged him to ignore the stone house and continue with the plan. The men inside were trapped. Even though they could still fire from the doors and windows, they could only do limited damage. But Brigadier General Henry Knox, chief of artillery, said it was a bad idea to leave a fortified position in enemy hands, even one that was limited. Washington gave Knox the green light to pound the house with his cannon. Knox bombarded the house, but the thick stone walls were stronger than expected. As long as the soldiers inside stayed away from the doors and windows, they were safe. And as the stone house became a focal point of the battle, American units in the field started to struggle. Nathaniel Green's main column finally arrived after being delayed by the fog and the confusing roads. As his troops started to engage the British lines, British reinforcements began to arrive. The newly bolstered British lines surged back against the American lines and halted Green's advance. And then the thick fog created the chaos that led to the end of the battle. The three American columns had not been able to coordinate their movements as well as Washington planned. And now, two units on the American flank ended up battling each other. It was a literal fog-of-war situation that caused American-friendly fire casualties. It only lasted for a brief time, but in the confusion, the American units opened a gap in the line that allowed the British to gain the advantage. The British counterattacked and drove the Americans from the battlefield. From Black Barrel Media, Q Code, and the historic Camden Foundation, this is Mission History. I'm Chris Wimmer, and this is the story of the American Revolution, with a focus on the soldiers from both sides who fought at the critical battle of Camden, South Carolina. This is Episode 4, A New Ally. This podcast is brought to you by the historic Camden Foundation, and we pose the question, What makes a hero? Courage, honor, sacrifice, a willingness to lay down one's life for a greater cause. More than 240 years ago, thousands clashed in a pine forest in the sweltering South Carolina summer during the American Revolutionary War. Hundreds made the ultimate sacrifice. Go to Camden, South Carolina to visit the hallowed ground of the Camden Battlefield. Walk the trails that were used by regiments from Maryland and Delaware, England and Scotland, and more. The historic Camden Foundation interprets revolutionary history in cooperation with the Revolutionary War Visitor Center. Experience hands-on history at their 100-acre colonial town site. See the battlefield, the Longleaf Pine Preserve, the Kershaw House, where British General Charles Cornwallis made his headquarters, and more. Go to historiccamden.org to plan your visit and follow them on Facebook and Instagram at Historic Camden Foundation. By 10 o'clock in the morning, it was all over. The British had been surprised and tested, but they had held. The American army lost about a thousand men at the Battle of Germantown, double the British losses. But it wasn't all doom and gloom for the Americans. They felt the defeat was due more to bad luck and circumstance than poor leadership or poor performance, though General Washington's battle plan was also a big contributing factor. 
With the unfamiliar ground, the weather conditions, and the precise timing and coordination that was required, the plan was just too complicated. Regardless, the Continental Army felt a sense of pride in its performance. It proved it was done being overrun and overwhelmed. Still, in the overall, the situation wasn't good. The British retained control of Philadelphia. Within six weeks of the Battle of Germantown, British units south of Philadelphia, including members of Fraser's Highlanders, captured the small American forts in the area. British commander William Howe made one last attempt to crush the American army before winter fully engulfed the region, but it resulted in a series of skirmishes outside Philadelphia in early December instead of a decisive battle. Howe pulled back and settled his troops into winter camps in and around the city. Washington moved his army to Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, about 20 miles from Philadelphia. As the main armies hunkered down for the winter, their commanders took stock of the situation. The fall of 1777 had been a mixed bag for both sides. The British had captured Philadelphia, and they now controlled two of the biggest cities in the Northeast, Philadelphia and New York. For the Americans, the losses of those two cities were crushing blows. But yet, there was still hope. An American force in central New York State had won an enormous victory and dealt the British a crushing blow of their own. The Hudson River starts at a lake in the High Peaks Wilderness area in Essex County in upstate New York. It runs down the eastern edge of New York State until it empties into the bays around New York City that flow into the Atlantic Ocean. The Hudson was the most vital waterway in the northern colonies, and the British wanted to control it. If they owned the Hudson, they could cut the colonies in half and isolate the northern colonies. That was the goal of Major General John Burgoyne's campaign in upstate New York. He had captured Fort Ticonderoga in July 1777 without a fight, and then moved south to the area around a village that was called Saratoga at the time, but is now the small town of Schuylerville. American Major General Horatio Gates, commander of the Northern Department of the Continental Army, was already there with about 8,500 soldiers. The Americans had built strong defenses on and around a ridge of high ground called Bemis Heights. On September 19th, eight days after the Battle of Brandywine outside Philadelphia, Burgoyne split his 7,500 men into three columns and sent them to find potential weak spots in the American defenses. At a place called Freeman's Farm, a column in the center clashed with American Colonel Daniel Morgan's light infantry, made up of Virginians, Pennsylvanians, and Marylanders. The ferocious fight cost the British 600 casualties and halted their forward movement. General Burgoyne dug in and waited for reinforcements from General Henry Clinton, who was moving north with most of the army that had been left in New York City after General Howe sailed to Philadelphia with the majority of British troops. Before Clinton could unite with Burgoyne and provide reinforcements, Clinton received a letter from the overall commander, General Howe. Howe wanted Clinton's troops in Pennsylvania. So Clinton turned around and headed back to New York City, leaving Burgoyne stranded at Saratoga. Burgoyne was in trouble. He would receive no reinforcements. Food supplies were running low. The Americans had superior numbers and formidable defenses, and cannon that covered the whole valley in front of him. 
On October 7th, three days after the Battle of Germantown outside Philadelphia, Burgoyne sent a reconnaissance patrol forward that ended up engaging the Americans in what became known as the Battle of Bemis Heights. The American field commanders, General Benedict Arnold and Colonel Daniel Morgan, distinguished themselves, with Arnold riding through the troops to rally them during the battle. He was shot in the left leg, a serious wound that had a huge impact on his future in the war and his legacy in American history. As the battle reached its heated peak, an American soldier shot and killed British Brigadier General Simon Fraser. Fraser was a Highlander from the same clan that recruited the 71st Regiment, Fraser's Highlanders. His death had an instant, demoralizing effect on the soldiers around him. The identity of the shooter has been debated ever since, but it seems likely that it was a member of Colonel Daniel Morgan's Virginia Riflemen. Morgan was a Virginian, and his 500 riflemen were known as creative and deadly fighters. They were frontiersmen who were called riflemen because they used rifled muskets instead of the traditional smooth-bore muskets. Rifles were more accurate, but they had downsides. They were slower to load and couldn't hold bayonets. They were great for guerrilla fighters in the backcountry who could fire once or twice and then disappear into the landscape but they were hazardous for regular army soldiers who often found themselves in hand-to-hand combat with British soldiers who had bayonets. At the Battle of Bemis Heights, the rifles and the riflemen did powerful damage to the British force. The battle was a decisive American victory. The next day, October 8th, the British tried to escape to the north, but they were swamped by torrential downpours. The rain made movement impossible and it ended the British Northern Campaign and the career of General John Burgoyne. Ten days after the battle, Burgoyne surrendered his army. He became a prisoner of war and was recalled to England the following spring and never served in uniform again. On the American side, Major General Horatio Gates, who was the overall commander at Saratoga, claimed all the glory for the victory and became a favorite of many congressmen. News of the American victory sailed across the Atlantic Ocean to Benjamin Franklin, who was now America's representative in France. He had lived in London for 20 years as an agent for the colonies, then returned home to Philadelphia as the threat of war increased. When the conflict became a war of independence, he assumed the role of agent or unofficial ambassador again and went to France to begin the long process of trying to gain an ally for the American colonies. Franklin had spent months trying to convince the French to fully commit to the American cause, but the French delayed while they waited to see if the Americans had a real shot of winning. With the news of the American victory at Saratoga, and despite the losses at Philadelphia, which happened simultaneously, Franklin began to work his magic. The French had been secretly providing the Americans with money and weapons for three years, as an example of the old expression, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. After Saratoga, the new nation in North America and the ancient kingdom in Europe became partners. On February 6, 1778, the United States and France established a formal alliance.
While Benjamin Franklin and others advocated in Paris for the colonial cause, the American army survived a long winter in its camp at Valley Forge. Cold and snow made life miserable, but disease was the real worry. Most of the men lived in small, crudely constructed log cabins, and the camp became a breeding ground for disease. More than 2,000 soldiers died that winter at Valley Forge. But in February 1778, when winter felt the longest and darkest, a man arrived at Valley Forge who injected new life into the army. Baron Friedrich von Steuben had been an officer in the Prussian army, and he had accumulated hefty debts after his service. He had offered his expertise to Britain, France, and Austria to help pay back his debts, but they all said no. Finally, he met Benjamin Franklin and the other American agents in Paris. They couldn't promise him rank or pay in the Continental Army, but if he was willing to simply volunteer, those things could be options in the future. Von Steuben was insulted, but with no other choice, he accepted and sailed to America. When he arrived at Valley Forge, he was appalled by the state of the army, and that didn't mean the suffering from the winter. Von Steuben was more concerned about the lack of training, discipline, and organization in the American ranks. He was given the job of Inspector General, and he immediately went to work. Over the course of two months, he drilled the men relentlessly in shooting, marching, and maneuvering as coordinated units. It was the first formal and extended training for many of the men in the Army. They emerged from Valley Forge different soldiers from the ones who entered camp several months earlier, though many would not put those newfound skills to use in the North. There was about to be a shakeup in the high command of the British Army, as well as orders for a different strategy. The day after the Treaty of Alliance was formalized between the American colonies and France, the British Commander-in-Chief of the Armies in America, William Howe, resigned his command. He couldn't have known about the treaty between the U.S. and France. It took months for the news to reach America, so the timing was just a coincidence. But Howe had failed to crush the upstart American army. He had captured New York and Philadelphia. But this war that began as a rebellion, then grew into a revolution, showed no signs of stopping. At first, the conflict had been an embarrassment which British officials assumed would be quickly resolved. Now it was a genuine threat to the British Empire, and it was only getting worse. Thomas Gage had been the commander-in-chief when the fighting started. As the situation in Boston had worsened, England sent William Howe, John Burgoyne, and Henry Clinton to assist Gage. Then, Gage was called back to England, and Howe took over as commander. Then, John Burgoyne was captured at Saratoga and sent back to England. Now, William Howe was done and headed home. That left General Henry Clinton as the last man standing of the original quartet of generals who had been ordered to stop the rebellion. In the early summer of 1778, Clinton decided to abandon Philadelphia and move his army back to New York. When France joined the war, Clinton was forced to send troops to places like the West Indies to guard British colonies against French attacks, and to West Florida to guard against Spanish attacks if Spain decided to join its ally France. Clinton worried that it would spread his army too thin to try to hold Philadelphia, so he gave up the American capital and started the march to New York. 
June 1778, New Jersey. In the campaign to capture Philadelphia, the British had loaded roughly 17,000 soldiers, plus horses, equipment, and artillery, onto ships and sailed from New York to Chesapeake Bay. They sailed up the bay and into the Elk River and landed in Northeast Maryland. From there, it was a relatively straightforward march of 40 miles to attack Philadelphia. Nine months later, when the British evacuated the city, they didn't have enough ships in the area to simply reverse the process. They loaded their heaviest gear and artillery onto the available ships and sailed it to New York. But the soldiers had to walk. The journey was roughly 65 miles from Philadelphia to the coast of New Jersey at Sandy Hook Bay. From there, the soldiers would load onto ships that would ferry them across the bay to Long Island or up to Manhattan Island. During the days that it would take the thousands of soldiers to walk 65 miles, they would be vulnerable. And American General George Washington saw an opportunity to attack. For the first time, Washington gave the young French officer, the Marquis de Lafayette, direct command of a sizable force with a goal of a serious engagement. But the Marquis was overzealous, and he pushed his men too hard in the heat and humidity of June 1778. By the time they were close enough to strike, they were exhausted. So, Washington sent his second-in-command, General Charles Lee, forward to take control. Lee was a vocal opponent of Washington's, and Lee had been captured by the British two and a half years earlier. He was released after the American victories at Saratoga, and he had just rejoined the army. He caught up with the Marquis' column and took command near the village of Monmouth Courthouse, which was right outside the modern-day town of Freehold, New Jersey. Lee started to attack the British rear guard at about 9.30 a.m. on June 28th. The British counterattacked in waves and caused confusion in the American lines. In a short space of time, an entire division of British troops wheeled around and bore down on the Americans. Communication between General Lee and his field commanders was poor, and the commanders and the troops began falling back on their own. As the British pressed hard, Lee ordered a retreat. At about that time, General George Washington rode up to the battlefield and saw the chaos. Washington shouted at Lee, and they had a heated exchange. Washington took control and issued orders to a series of commanders to keep the mess from turning into a catastrophe. By that point, the artillery for both sides was in place and they blasted away at each other. All afternoon, the two armies shelled each other. And in that duel, the tradition of a woman called Molly Pitcher was born. Soldiers' wives often traveled with the army and some helped with washing and cleaning in camp. Many also acted as water carriers during battle, especially for the men in the artillery units. The legend of Molly Pitcher most closely resembles the life of Mary Hayes. Mary's husband, William, was an artilleryman for the Continental Army at the Battle of Monmouth. Mary carried water to the thirsty men in her husband's unit, which was how she could have earned the nickname Molly Pitcher. Molly was a common nickname for a woman named Mary, and Pitcher referred to the buckets of water. When her husband was injured during the cannon duel, Mary stepped in and worked with the crew. She had watched her husband drill, and now she jumped into action in the heat of the battle. Her service grew into legend, 
and she undoubtedly played a small part in the American effort that day. By about six o'clock that evening, it was clear that the battle was a stalemate. The guns fell quiet, and the American army made camp with the expectation that it would renew the battle the next day. But British commander Henry Clinton borrowed George Washington's tactic. During the night, Clinton moved his army away from the battlefield and continued the journey to New York. After the Battle of Monmouth, American Commander-in-Chief George Washington relieved his second-in-command, Charles Lee, of duty. Lee was court-martialed for disobeying orders and insubordination, and Congress removed him from service for one year. During that year, he continued to speak out against Washington, which landed Lee in a duel where he was shot in the side. That was the unofficial end of Charles Lee's military career, and he formally resigned from the army in 1780. By July of 1778, British General Henry Clinton had re-established the British Army in New York. That summer, the first troops from France arrived to join the American Army, and General Washington gave the green light to a plan to try to retake the nearby city of Newport, Rhode Island. It had been under British control for two years, and the effort to retake it was the first combined effort for the American and French troops. The attempt turned into a siege that lasted a month, from late July to late August. There was fierce fighting at various points during the siege, and the 1st Rhode Island Infantry was noted for its admirable performance. The 1st Rhode Island was distinctive because the unit was made up almost entirely of black enlisted soldiers. Ultimately, the American detachment abandoned the siege and rejoined the main army in September. By that point, summer was fading and fall was on the doorstep, and winter was right behind it. Around New York, neither commander had the desire to move into a full-scale battle, so British General Henry Clinton put his plan for a southern campaign into motion. Clinton himself had failed to capture the port city of Charleston, South Carolina, two years earlier, so now he turned his attention to another deep-water port, Savannah, Georgia. Clinton ordered Lieutenant Colonel Archibald Campbell to lead the expedition. Campbell was a battalion commander of the 71st Regiment of Foot, Fraser's Highlanders. Campbell assembled a force of 3,000 soldiers and set sail in late November. They arrived on the Georgia coast on December 23, 1778, and within six days, they captured Savannah. The Highlanders led the assault and were supported by Hessians and provincial regiments from New York and New Jersey. Captain Sir James Baird and Captain Charles Cameron led the Highlander Light Infantry Companies who outflanked and surprised the American force that guarded Savannah. Lieutenant Colonel John Maitland followed up with attacks from two sides with a combined force of Highlanders and Hessians. The Americans suffered heavy casualties and the survivors retreated up to South Carolina. A company of Highlanders who took possession of the fort gave three cheers from the parapets as a signal to Captain Parker that the fort had fallen into our hands, and other companies of the right wing of the 71st Regiment immediately joined in the pursuit of the rebel army through the town of Savannah. 
Lieutenant Colonel Archibald Campbell. The British had their foothold in the South, and the Southern theater of the war was officially open. As the main army settled into their winter camps in the North, three years of nonstop fighting began in the South. With the capture of Savannah, Fraser's Highlanders started to earn their reputations in the South as fierce fighters. They had arrived in New York as raw recruits from the Scottish Highlands. But over the course of two years of heavy fighting, they had become hardened, reliable soldiers. Now, they led the charge to capture Savannah and establish a foothold and a base of operations in the South. The next step was to expand. In the first week of February, 1779, Lieutenant Colonel Campbell led the Highlanders inland and captured Augusta, Georgia. Along the way, an incident occurred that fired up the Highlanders even more than they were naturally. The British Expeditionary Force captured an American officer and stashed him in a local house. Private McAllister of the 71st Regiment was assigned to guard the prisoner. During the night, American guerrilla fighters crept into the area and attacked McAllister to free the prisoner. One of these parties shot and cruelly cut with hatchets one of our most valuable light infantrymen, named McAllister, who'd been placed as a safeguard at the house. The barbarity which accompanied this murder was disgraceful in the extreme. At the time, such tactics were considered violations of the rules of war. Lieutenant Colonel Campbell complained about the sneak attack to the local American commander, but the commander chose not to investigate the matter. The nighttime attack was another example of unconventional warfare by the Americans, which was a tactic that would be used increasingly in the Southern theater. By the time the war fully engulfed the region, unconventional tactics would be embraced by the Americans. The Highlanders viewed the death of Private McAllister as murder, not a battle fatality and they were eager to exact revenge. But that would have to wait. At the moment, they completed their takeover of Augusta, Georgia, and waited for news of the rest of the expansion plan, which was starting to falter. British successes at Savannah and then Augusta had been relatively easy. But at the same time the Highlanders were capturing Augusta, a British detachment tried to take Port Royal, South Carolina. The goal was to establish a base from which to advance inland into South Carolina and attack the major port city of Charleston. Port Royal was a sizable community on Paris Island, about 30 miles north of Savannah, and the brief engagement ended with a British loss. On February 3, 1779, an American force met the British force outside the town and they pounded each other for about 45 minutes. The battle was unique in American history because the American force featured two men who signed the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Hayward Jr. and Edward Rutledge. Their defense of Port Royal was successful. The Americans repelled the British and sent them back to Savannah. And the fighting around Paris Island in the American Revolution established a long history of military presence in the area. During World War I, a Marine Corps recruiting depot was established and it became the primary training facility for Marines in the Eastern region. Two weeks after Augusta and Port Royal, a Patriot militia unit 
defeated a Loyalist provincial unit at an engagement in the Georgia backcountry called the Battle of Kettle Creek. At the same time that was happening, Lieutenant Colonel Campbell determined that it would be too difficult to hold Augusta with his current force. From every intelligence, there was scarcely a hope of our being now joined at Augusta with the Loyalists in the backcountry. It was impossible to obtain a sufficiency of provisions and rum in this neighborhood to last us any time, and there was no reason to expect supplies of either, nor any reinforcements of men from General Prevo. Campbell abandoned Augusta and began to lead the Highlanders back to Savannah. Along the way, they found their chance for revenge for the death of Private McAllister. An American force of Georgia Continental soldiers and North Carolina militiamen had tracked the British force and stationed themselves along Briar Creek, about 50 miles north of Savannah. A British officer led three units of Highlanders and some Loyalist militiamen to attack the American position. The commander used one of the Highlander battalions to distract the Americans, and on March 3, 1779, he sent the others toward a gap in the American lines. The Highlander Light Infantry and the 2nd Battalion charged into the gap shouting, Remember poor McAllister. The Highlanders did a good portion of their work with the bayonet. They won the battle, and they furthered their reputations as fighters to be feared. The Battle of Briar Creek ended a month of heavy marching and fighting in Georgia and South Carolina, and the British and the Americans paused their exertions until summer. When summer arrived, the summer of 1779, the Americans in the South became fixated on dislodging the Highlanders from Savannah. Major General Benjamin Lincoln was the American commander in the South, and he'd experienced mixed results thus far. In the first half of 1779, units from his army had lost at Savannah, Augusta, and Briar Creek. But they had successfully defended Port Royal and had harassed the Highlanders at Augusta to the point where Lieutenant Colonel Campbell chose to give up the city. By summer, Campbell was sailing back to England before being promoted to Major General and assuming the role of Governor of Jamaica. Before his departure, part of the British force at Savannah made a play for Charleston in April and May. It fizzled out, and as the troops returned to Savannah in June, the Americans attacked at a ferry crossing on the Stono River. A British force comprised of 71st Highlanders, Hessians, and Loyalist Provincials guarded the crossing, and a much larger army of Americans assaulted with overwhelming force. The Highlanders made a brave stand that stopped the Americans' progress, but the Highlanders were eventually overrun and pushed back. The Hessians initially fell back, but then rallied, and by the time the Americans could navigate the swampy marshland that was the battlefield, British reinforcements were arriving. The Americans retreated and settled for waiting for the much larger action of attempting to retake Savannah. A month later, the Highlanders and the Marylanders clashed for one final time in the North. It was the last major battle in the Northern Theater, and the Marylanders finally got the better of the Highlanders. That spring, while sustained fighting began in the South, British Commander-in-Chief Henry Clinton was on the move in the North, 
he sailed up the Hudson River with 6,000 troops and captured the sparsely manned American garrisons at Stony Point and King's Ferry. Stony Point was one of three prominent rock outcroppings along the Hudson on which the Americans built forts. Stony Point was the closest to New York. Above it was Jones Point, and above Jones Point was what George Washington considered the most important piece of ground in America, West Point. Clinton thought that if he captured Stony Point, it would signal to George Washington that he would eventually move against West Point, and that would finally draw Washington out into open battle. But Washington, again, had no intention of taking the bait. He did move his army out of its winter camp in response, but he refused to engage in a big set-piece battle. Instead, Washington ordered General Anthony Wayne to lead the elite Light Infantry Corps on a daring nighttime assault. The men of the Light Infantry Corps were seasoned veterans who had proven themselves in battle, and the officers were handpicked by Washington. At least four companies of Marylanders were in the Corps, and their officer was Major John Stewart. Stewart was one of the surviving members of the immortal Maryland 400. He helped lead the raid on Staten Island and surrendered as a kind of distraction to allow his men to escape the island. He was last seen by the British escaping a prison ship after his surrender, and now he was back in action. By mid-July 1779, General Anthony Wayne had a plan. British commander Henry Clinton had taken most of his 6,000 men back down to New York City. Fewer than 600 soldiers remained at Stony Point, two companies of whom were from the 71st Regiment, Fraser's Highlanders. At midnight on July 16th, General Wayne told his Light Infantry Corps to unload their weapons and fix bayonets. This attack would rely on speed, stealth, and brutality, not firepower. One errant shot would give away the game. Wayne divided his men into three columns, and they approached the fort at Stony Point from different directions. One column drew the attention of the British defenders, while the other two attacked through swampy marshlands. British defenders fired wildly at shapes that moved in the darkness as the American assaulters scaled the heights to attack the fort. Soon, the fight became hand-to-hand -hand as Americans slashed and stabbed with their bayonets. The Americans fought their way into the fort, and a French lieutenant colonel who was part of the Light Infantry Corps pulled down the British flag. A few minutes later, the British defenders were overwhelmed and they surrendered. Everyone in the fort was killed or captured, including the Highlanders. And General Anthony Wayne, who led the main charge himself and was wounded in the process, was the hero of the hour. The success at Stony Point was called brilliant, and Congress awarded medals to General Anthony Wayne, Major John Stewart, and Lieutenant Colonel Francois de Fleury for leading the assault. But unfortunately, George Washington determined they couldn't hold the position, and he gave it up almost immediately. The Americans destroyed everything of use and abandoned the fort. Three days after the attack, the British walked back into Stony Point. For the men of the Maryland line, the battle at Stony Point was their final significant action in the North. The main armies of George Washington and Henry Clinton settled into a stalemate for the rest of the year. Smaller fights continued throughout the Northeast all summer, 
But when the fighting season began the following year, in the spring of 1780, the focus was squarely on the South. Next time on Mission History, American and French forces lay siege to Savannah, Georgia, and British commander Henry Clinton shifts the entire war to the South. George Washington rushes troops to South Carolina as the British begin their conquest of the state, and the Southern armies meet for a devastating battle in a forest of pine trees outside the small town of Camden. The Southern campaign begins in earnest next time on Mission History. This series of Mission History is a production of Black Barrel Media, Q-Code, and the historic Camden Foundation. In this episode, you heard Rob Sharp as Lieutenant Colonel Archibald Campbell. The series was researched, written, and directed by me, Chris Wimmer. It was produced by myself and Mandy Wimmer. Our executive producers are Kerry Briggs for the historic Camden Foundation and Steve Wilson and Dave Henning for Q-Code. Marketing lead for Q-Code was Ellie Kotopish. Original music by Rob Valier. Featured violin by Kevin Huang. Historical advisors were Owen Lurie, historian with the Maryland State Archives, and Jim Pykooch, South Carolina historian and author. Their help was invaluable. Extra special thanks goes to the team at the historic Camden Foundation. Carrie, Stacy, Margaret, Catherine, Will, Lance, Len, Davey, Liz, Barbara, Arthur, and Marley. Thanks for listening. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.